Good morning, Union Chapel. How are we doing this morning? All right. Hey, my name is Jeff Hughes. I serve as the Connections Pastor. And I just want to echo what you just heard about BU at UC. Uh, juniors, seniors, young adults, we highly want to encourage you to come join us for this lunch uh, on the 25th. You'll see info around on the seats or you can stop by on the kiosks on your uh, way out after the service. So check those out. Weren't baptisms phenomenal? Wow, 18 people today taking that step in all of our services. Just doesn't get any better than that. I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me 15 years ago that would have probably kept me from standing on this stage here today. Uh, it was uh, one of those moments that could have changed my life in a very dramatic way. It was a Saturday morning and we were having a special event here at the church where youth were being shuttled from various pickup sites all over the city here to the 180 building. And I was going to speak, we were going to have some food and games, and it was going to be a great, great time uh, again 15 years ago. And I sat down in my office on a Saturday morning and I reached in my back pocket and took my wallet out and slipped it in my desk drawer. Uh, I was sitting on it, I was doing some work. I thought, okay, I'm just gonna, I don't need this right now. Well, they called me from one of the pickup sites and said, hey, can you run some more check-in materials over here? And I said, sure, no, no problem. So grab my keys, grab the stuff that they needed, hopped in my truck, uh, went down Martin Luther King Boulevard and was driving uh, down the road, came to a stoplight and the light was green and I needed to make a left-hand turn, but there were cars that were coming the opposite direction. I hastily turned in front of them without yielding, and I'm very lucky that they didn't run into me and have an accident. That didn't happen, but right behind me in my rearview mirror, there were some red and blue lights that started flashing. Yeah. How many of you remember where my wallet was uh, just a few moments ago in this story? Yeah. Do you know the first question you get asked by an officer when you get pulled over? Okay. I see some of you have experience in this. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been there. The officers asked for my license, my registration, and of course, I was in some trouble. I did have a, a few of those documents, and so I provided them to them and wrote down some other info for them. Uh, they were at their car behind me for what felt like a very long time. I mean, like excruciatingly painful. When they came back up, I swear I first noticed that something was a little bit odd. You see, after being back there for quite a while, they came up my vehicle with one officer on either side and they kind of crept up like this. Had their flashlights out, were looking in my truck. I thought, that's weird. When they get up to the side, uh, the officer that was on my driver's side, uh, he asked me to take my hands and to put them on the steering wheel like this, which I did. He then asked me to put my hands like this on the inside of the steering wheel. And that's where I began to get a little suspicious about what was going to happen next. You see, I've seen these shows where they put these uh, nice bracelets on your hands and I didn't want to be wearing these for sure. Had no clue what was going on. I said, what's happening? He said, well, we have some good news and some bad news. What would you like first? I said, I don't care. I just want to know what's happening. Mind you, we were right in front of the pickup site. So now all the students who were going to be picked up were now looking at the pastor who was going to be leading the event in just a few minutes. Go, oh, he's in trouble. Huh. Well, I said, well, give me the bad news. They said, the bad news is there's a warrant out for murder for a gentleman with your same name. I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I work at Union Chapel. See these kids right here that are laughing? I, yeah, they're, they're mine. Uh, 
I said, well, what, what's the good news? Is there good news? You're going to get an arrest today. You're going to get a promotion. I mean, you're going to solve a case. What's the good news? And they said, the good news is he has some identifying marks. And so we know that you are not him. I breathed the first breath that I had been holding for several minutes and, uh, and just thought, Okay, all right, there's some light here. My heart slowed down a little bit from jumping out of my chest. And they encouraged me to carry my driver's license and to have a good day, sir. <laughs> what? They go back to their vehicle and it made a great illustration for those kids. I told them we just set it all up, you know, it was all planned, right? Just lied through my teeth to those kids. Um, <laughs> but how many of you know a mistaken identity can be a bad thing? How many of you know mistaken identity can be very, very costly? And that's almost what happened to me that day. I was shaken up, but it could have been a lot worse, a lot, lot worse. Today, I'm calling my message Mistaken Identity. And I want to share with you five things that we see from the book of 1 Peter about how to not have a mistaken identity. And so if you want to make your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at just two verses here this morning, verses 9 and 10. You can see these in your, your Bible, your mobile device, version Bible app, whatever. And uh, as custom, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful Light. Verse 10 reads, once you were not a people, get that, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want you to find two people next to you. I want you to look at them and say, I don't want to have a mistaken identity. And then grab a seat. <laughs> well, we all want to know who we are, right? Don't we? We all want to know who we are and find ourselves. Many of us in this room and on our team have taken personality assessments and gifts assessments to help us understand who we are. And, and those are not a bad thing. They can help you understand your temperament, your gifting, and a little bit about yourself. Some, even in the room here this morning, have been described in some of these tests as a lion or maybe an otter. Or maybe uh, these letters resonate with you, an I-N-T-J or perhaps an ESFP. Maybe you're in the room and you've been described as an ideator. Maybe also you've been described as competitive. Now, you don't have to take a test to know you're competitive. If you have a spouse, they're usually really quick to tell you. They will let you know. <laughs> uh, maybe you're a high D, low C. Or for my Enneagram folks, maybe you're an eight with a wing seven. For some of you in the room, you think I've lost my ever-loving mind and have no idea what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> but as helpful as some of these tests can be in determining our, our profile or our personality, it's so, so important that we understand who God says we are. It's so important. In fact, I know a lot of people who have a mistaken identity because they don't listen and look for what God says about them. Let me just tell you that what God says about you is the most true thing about you. And if we'll grab a hold of that and really resonate with that to the core of who we are, then I believe that our lives will be changed if we understand that. So through this talk, I want you to remember that, that what God says about you 
is the most true thing. Sometimes we have to fight the urge to think about what our spouse thinks about us or our boss or our friends, but what God thinks is the most important. So get that. So what does God say about us? Well, the first thing of five, and these are on your outline on the mobile app. You can check that out. They'll also come up on the screen is God says you are acceptable. You are acceptable. We see in 1 Peter 2, 9 that God calls us a chosen people. And friends, to be chosen means to be accepted. Israel was God's chosen tribe from all the tribes on the earth. And now God has chosen you. He has accepted you. You know, most of us go through much of our life looking for acceptance in all these other places. We seek acceptance from our parents, from our peers, from our partners, from, from the guy at the stoplight next to us at McGalliard, right? We seek acceptance all over the place by the clothes we wear, the car we drive, the, the house that we live in, the things that we do, the career we choose. But why do so many of us wrestle with a deep core of acceptance of who we are? It's a great question. And I think this feeling of love and acceptance is, is something we all want. We all want to feel chosen. We all want to feel accepted. We all want to feel loved. How many of you remember playing baseball or kickball in, in middle school and teams were being chosen? You can remember this moment, right? For some of you, you were the team captain that got chosen first to actually pick who they wanted on their team. They usually pick the two best athletes, put them as team captains. Everyone else lines up on the sideline. And one by one, people get picked off and put on teams. Now, for some of you, even just sharing this story right now creates a moment of anxiety, right? Some of you know, hey, I was likely to be the first, first or second chosen, and you were probably going to be on the winning team that your buddy was the captain of, right? You had it all figured out, right? But for some of us, we're in that moment, or we can relate to standing there wondering, where will I be chosen? Where will I fit in the lineup of acceptance that's playing out right here on the kickball field with all of these uh, Division I athletes who are in third grade? right? I love what the Bible says in Titus chapter 3, verse 7. I want you to see it on the screen. It says, Jesus treated us much better than we deserve. He made us acceptable to God. That's the best place to be accepted, isn't it? Yeah. He made us acceptable to God and he gave us what? He gave us hope of eternal life. Friends, you can have hope today in knowing that you can have eternal life and that God has accepted you. We see that in Titus chapter 3, verse 7. I want you to know that what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross makes you totally acceptable to God. And God wants to have a relationship with you. And if you're here today and you resist that, I want you just to lean in and listen to what God may want to say because you are acceptable there were some parents in the East Coast, and they received a phone call from their son during the Iraq War. They were thrilled because they hadn't heard from their son in many, many months. And you can imagine being a, a mother of a soldier and picking up the phone and hearing that it's your son. And he's in California. He's no longer in Iraq. And, and this delighted mom says, well, well, what's the plan? What are you doing? And the son from California says to his mom, I'm coming home. She was delighted. She was thrilled. The soldier goes on, he says, I want you to know I'm bringing a buddy with me. We got, we got really close in battle, but, but mom, you should know, he got hurt pretty bad. He's missing an arm, a leg, and an eye. 
but I'd sure love for him to come and live with us. We've gotten really close. He was very supportive. The mom says, sure, son, no, no problem. He sounds like a brave man. We can find some room in the house for a while to help him uh, get back in the world and get situated. And the soldier says, mom, you don't understand. I want him to come and live with us. The mom then bounces back and sure, you know, six, eight months, we can work something out. Don't worry, just come home, son. Well, the son says, insists that he moves in and stays with them. He says, my buddy needs us. He's, he's lost a lot and he needs the acceptance and care from our family. Can, can he move in and stay with us? So the mom finally just begins to lose it a little bit. She's ready to see her son. She knows that he's emotional from, from war and from battle. And she says, son, you're being unrealistic. You're emotional. You've been in war. This, this, this buddy from, from battle would be a drag on our family and, and would pull you down. Be reasonable. Well, there was a click very soon after that, and the phone hung up. And attempts for the mom to reach her son in California went directly to voicemail. Until a couple hours later when she received a text message from her son. And the text said this. It said, Mom, I will not be coming home. Instead, I'm checking into a rehab facility in California. Attached to the text was a picture of her son with one arm, one leg, and one eye. Even with our disabilities, even with our character flaws, with our immaturity, with our insecurities, God accepts us where we are. And he opens his arms and he invites us home no matter our situation. No matter our circumstance, he welcomes us. You don't have to get cleaned up, stitched up, fixed up, mended. God says, you're welcome. Come on in. There's room in my house. So hear this today. You are acceptable. The second thing that God says to us is you are valuable. You are valuable. So let me ask you a question. How much do you think you're worth? How much are you worth? No, I don't mean grab your, your mobile device and go to your bank app. No, not at all. I'm not talking possessions. I'm not talking valuables. I'm talking value. And these are completely different. You see, to answer the question, how much you think you're worth, we actually need to look at what determines value. And there are two things that determine value for us to see today, church. The first is what someone is willing to pay for something. So you got a baseball card. It's in pristine condition. It's the right player, the right era. It's, it's just perfect. The value of that will be determined why, by what someone is willing to pay for it. Same is true for a house or a car or a piece of art. The value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. The second thing that determines value is this. It's who has owned the item in the past. So if this belonged to Elvis it's gonna be more valuable. Or if it belonged to some other famous person, it will hold more value. I love what we see in 1 Peter 2.9. It says, you are God's special possession. Can we just let that sink in for a minute? You're God's special possession. He calls you chosen. Now I've seen some of my kids' special possessions. My daughter will turn four uh, next week. Hang on a minute while I deal with that for a moment. But she has some special possessions. We learned very early on that there were some stuffed animals that were just critical. In fact, there was one. And in fact, she loved it so much. And we learned this early on that we went on Amazon and bought a second 
because we knew that if this was ever lost or anything happened to it, the world would be in a bad place for our family, right? She had a special possession. We see this in kids all the time, but have you ever thought about it with God? Much less have you ever thought that you are that item? You are God's special possession. Isn't that rich with truth? 1 Corinthians 7.23 reminds us that you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. You were bought with a price. What was the price? The price that Jesus paid when he went to the cross of Calvary, where God says, I love you so much that he sent his son Jesus to pay for the sins of the world. But the story didn't end there because we know what we celebrated last Sunday is that the tomb could not hold Jesus. He did not stay dead, but Jesus exchanged his life for ours. So remember two things that create value, who the owner is and what somebody is willing to pay for the item. There was a boy who painstakingly built a sailboat. It was a model and he crafted this thing together with lots of time and intentionality. He spent weeks and weeks and weeks working on this sailboat. And when he had finally completed it, he decided that he would go test it out at an open body of water nearby where he lived. The boy loved the boat. He was so proud of this thing. It was amazing. So he goes down to the body of water and he made sure the sails were just right, that they were, they were perfect. He places the boat in the body of water just right and has the greatest of anticipation. Can you feel this moment? Uh, will it float? How far will it go? How fast will it go? What's gonna happen? Well, he gives the boat just a gentle push and it takes off. The wind begins to catch the sails and the boat cuts through the water much better than expected. What a sight, the boat skimmed the top of the water like it was on top of glass. But then unexpectedly, right before the boy realized what was happening, the sailboat just kept going. It just kept going, it didn't stop. The boy hoped with all of his heart, all of his might, that the wind would, would shift and that it would turn the sailboat or that it would run into something or that it would, would hit a wave or a rock. And the boy started to panic and quickly he waded into the water until it was getting deeper and deeper and deeper and had no hope of catching up to the boat because it had gone out too far. The boat faded off into the distance and it disappeared. It was gone. The little boy makes his way home to his mother. He's crying, just very distraught. Mom, as you can imagine, says, what's wrong? Did, did, did the boat not float? Did it sink? What, what happened? And, and the boy says, no, mom, it, it, it worked very well. In fact, better than I thought, and it sailed away. It's gone. The boy is in a bit of a depression for several days, and he's walking downtown where they had some shops, and he sees in the window of a thrift shop, the boat that he had labored to build sitting right there. Well, you can imagine his amazement because he thought he would never see this boat again. So he, he goes in this thrift store. He, he picks up the boat. He looks at it and he says to the store owner, this boat, it's mine. Look at the scratches that I made on the side. And if you look on the bottom, you can see my initials right there. Well, he held the boat in his arms and he turned to walk out the door with his possession. The store owner says, now, now, wait a minute, son. I paid somebody for that boat. You can't just walk out of the store with that. The little boy confused says, no, no, I, I made it. I made it. The owner apologizes and says, I, I'm sorry. I bought that boat. And if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. 
the little boy reaches to his pockets and realizes that what very little change he has in there is not going to be the cost for that boat. He goes home and does several odd jobs around the house and begins to save up and save up until he has the, the cash on hand to go into this thrift store. Just a, a week or so later, he goes in, he, he picks up the boat, and he pays the store owner for that boat. And with great delight, can you imagine this? He's holding this boat just so tight. He's holding it. A passerby on the sidewalk in that downtown hears this boy say, you're my boat. You're twice my boat, in fact. You're first my boat because I made you, and you're second my boat because I bought you back. Can you feel it? Your creator made you. You were lost because the wind of salvation came when you were lost in your sin. God gave his son Jesus a precious possession, a great cost to buy you back, to redeem you. And today he clings to you and says, you are mine. You are mine because I created you and you are mine because I bought you back. Today you need to hear two things. You are acceptable and you are are valuable. Let that sink in. Here's the third thing God wants to say to us today. You are capable, capable. I love what we see in 1 Peter 2, 9, where it says you are a royal priesthood. You can't be a royal priesthood if you're not capable of that. So God gives us what we need to do so. He's saying you're capable. In its original form, a priest was a special role. It was a role that was given to just a, a few people in Israel in the Old Testament. But now in a, in a New Testament covenant, every Christian has the opportunity to be a priest. In fact, we're called a royal priesthood. And Peter's saying there are two benefits that a priest has, two responsibilities, two rights, two benefits. And get these, here's the first, direct access to God. You have direct access to God. You don't have to pray to somebody else. You don't have to talk to somebody else and then them go talk to the big guy. You can go directly to God with access. Here's the second thing that a priest does. We have responsibility to minister to the needs of people around us. You see, in this covenant, every Christian is a minister. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. You may not know this, but the Latin word for priest means bridge. So think about that for a moment. It's really clear, isn't it? So a priest is a bridge builder between God and man. And as a royal priesthood, which we see from 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a bridge builder. So question for us all across the room today. Where has God given you an opportunity to build a bridge between where people you know are and where God is? Maybe it's a conversation this week that you need to have with, with a friend, a coworker, maybe a family member, maybe your spouse. Maybe God is calling you to be that bridge for them to come to know God in a meaningful way. I love what we see in 1 Peter 2, 9 in the message translation. I'll put this on the screen for you. Check it out. It says, but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be a holy people. Now get this next line. God's instruments to do his work. 
Now, let me stop right there for just a second. Get this, look up here. You can ask any person who has a profession where they use instruments. That is what they need. That is what they use every single day for their job, for their responsibilities. And so what we see here is that you are God's chosen instruments. You are the instruments to do God's work. This verse goes on in the message. It says to speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference that God has made for you from nothing to something and get these last words from rejected to accepted. Man, that's good news. That is so good. There's a night and day difference from accepted and rejected, isn't there? There's a night and day difference. And you are God's chosen instruments to tell the world of this difference that it's made in your life. And as a priest, as a royal priesthood, you are saved to serve. So find your fit and get in the game because God is choosing you to be on his team. He's choosing you right now. He's saying, get in the game be a bridge. There's people you know who need to know God, and I'm calling you to be the instrument that they will hear the good news. So hear this today. You are acceptable, you're valuable, and you are capable. Here's the fourth thing that God wants to say to us today. You are forgivable. You are forgivable. You see, for us to be a holy nation, we can't be marred by sin, right? We have to belong to Jesus Christ. So because of that, we have to be forgiven and we are. You know, I think there's really no better three words to describe the gospel than you are forgiven. And I also think, church, it's important for us to understand that sometimes we say, oh, I forgive you, I forgive you. And we kind of throw that around casually, right? But this is God. The one who actually could judge us for our sins is saying, you are forgiven. I remember it no more. I want you to see the New Living Translation of Romans 8.1. It says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. None, no condemnation. You have been forgiven. There was a wealthy English merchant who was very eccentric and, and wanted the best that money could buy. So naturally, he had to drive a Rolls Royce, right? It was his pride and joy. And he drove this for, for years and years after perfect service. He finally uh, hit a deep pothole and his rear axle broke in half, probably driving in Delaware County somewhere. The Englishman ships this car back to the Rolls-Royce plant, and he was surprised when the car was repaired overnight and returned to him without a bill. Amazing. Although his warranty had run out, there was no charge. The car was fixed perfectly and free. The owner thinks there's got to be a mistake. It's not under warranty. I know this should cost something. He picks up the phone and he calls and he gets a agent with Rolls Royce and the reply says this. It says, we have absolutely no record of your Rolls Royce axle ever breaking. Therefore, there can be no charge. You see, it was the company's commitment to excellence that would not permit them to be made known a flaw with their vehicle. And so it was fixed and returned with no charge 
as if nothing had ever gone wrong. Can you see the connection to God's mercy and to his grace for us? When we confess our sins, God forgives us. He makes us right with God and and without charge to us, but costing Jesus everything. Our lives are set free. We're made whole. I want everyone in the room to grasp this next thought because it's something that we often do, but God doesn't. You see, God, he doesn't rehearse our sin. He releases it. But what we do is we mull it over, over and over in our head. We we rehearse, we play out these scenes, these stories of the sins in our life. When God says, what are you talking about? What sin? I don't remember any sin. That's been forgiven. And so today, if you're in the room and you are a person who has a tendency to rehearse your sin over and over and just get down on yourself for that, will you hear the truth from God today that God doesn't rehearse your sin? He releases it and be free today in Jesus' name, be free. If God doesn't remember it, why should we? He releases us. Come to Jesus, receive his forgiveness, have your sins wiped out, in entirety, he'll do it. Peter's reminding us that as Christians, before Jesus Christ, we were not God's people. Without Jesus, we can't be God's people. He didn't have compassion on us because he remembered our sin, but since Jesus died on the cross, we can hear these words that we are acceptable, that we are valuable, that we are capable, and that we are forgivable. here's the fifth and final thing from this message that God wants to say to us, you are lovable. You are lovable. Yeah, yes, sir, you, you as well. The gentleman in the room right now that would say, you are talking to everyone else in this room except for me. No, sir, I'm talking to you too as well. The woman in this room who thinks that she is too far gone from God, that God could never love her if God only knew what I've done. He does. And he still loves you. You are lovable. First Peter 2.10 says you have received mercy. And this mercy came into the world because of God's love for you. God doesn't say I'll love you if. He doesn't say I'll love you uh, if you will do this or when you do this. He says I love you. Let that go to the core of who you are today. You can't make God love you any more or love you any less than he already does today because love is not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on who he is. And if we will understand that, it will transform our lives. I love what we see in the good news translation of Isaiah 54 verse 10. Check this out. It says, the mountains and hills may crumble, but my love for you will never end. Let me share something important with you. Do you know that it's very challenging for a person who doesn't understand God's love for them to be loving to other people. Perhaps you find yourself in a situation right now and you realize, man, I I haven't loved my family. I haven't loved my friends, my business associates. I have not shown them true love. There's a very close connection and understanding that you are loved and lovable by God, your creator before you can give love 
and even receive it to other people. I think this is a concept that, that if we will understand and if we will apply to our lives every day, it'll change the way we live. It'll change marriages. It'll change uh, relationships between fathers and sons. It'll change the way uh, bosses and, and workers work together. It'll change the way teams uh, perform on the court together. I think when we love and care for one another out of a true compassion, the love that we see that, that Jesus has for us, it'll change our life. So maybe you needed to hear that today. Don't nudge your spouse next to you, but I encourage you that, that we would walk out of this place today as people who would be more loving to others, mainly because we realize the direct connection of God's love to us. It's so, so important. We've got to remember what God says about us. It's the truest thing about us. We can't think about what the world thinks of us or even what we think about ourselves. We've got to remember that, that God's love, this perfect love, removes all fear. See, it's the beauty of the gospel. That is the gospel. The work that, that Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection is that right in the middle of our sins, our failures, and our doubts, God calls us chosen, holy, and his special possession. And then he pulls us out of that situation and transforms our lives. I love baptisms, what we witnessed together here this morning. The symbolism of being washed and set free as a candidate goes under the water and then emerges out of that water, a new creation. Maybe today in your heart, you need a spiritual baptism by saying, God, I... I realize and I recognize what you want to do and what you have already done on the cross and what we celebrated last week on Easter by the resurrection of Jesus. And I want a spiritual transformation in my life. All you have to do is ask and God will meet you right where you are. One last thought I want you to see as we move this message to a close and I'll put it on the screen. It's this, while the world says do, strive and achieve, Jesus says, surrender, believe, and receive. That's the gospel. So many times we live under that first statement. Do, strive, achieve. When what God sent Jesus to the cross is that we would surrender, that we would believe, and that we would receive. And so today, likely, there's someone in this room who needs to join the chorus of others from our first service who said, that's me. I need that. I need to see myself in the way that God sees me. One last story, and then I'll be finished. There was a beggar who lived near a king's palace. One day, he's walking down the road, and he sees a proclamation posted there on the palace gate. You see, the king was throwing a, a great dinner. This was for royalty, and all those who had royal garments were invited to attend and were welcome. Well, the beggar just continues on his way because he looks down at himself, and he's in tattered and torn rags. And so he continues going, but he has a thought. He walks a little further, and then that, that thought just burns in his heart. So he spins around, he goes back to the palace gate, and he goes to the, to the gate and he says to the guard at that gate, please, sir, I'd like to speak to the king. Now, how many of you know that that is not a great thing for you to do because with just a word, you could be gone, right? So the guard is in a good mood that day and he calls the king. The king says, bring the man in. 
So the man comes before the king and, and, and he says with a tone, what do you want? The beggar then describes to him, your, your majesty, I, I very much would like to attend the banquet, but I, I have no royal garments to wear. I'm dressed in rags, as you can see. Please, sir, if, if I may be so bold as to ask for some of your old royal robes. He puts his head down, trembling in fear of what's going to happen next. The king says, you, sir, have been very wise in coming to ask me this question today. The king sends the beggar off with his son, the prince, and says, take him to your closet, array him in some of your finest clothes. The prince did as he was told, and the beggar was standing before the mirror, clothed in these garments that he never could have afforded and never would have even imagined seeing himself wearing. The prince says to him, you are now eligible to attend the royal banquet tomorrow. The beggar's so excited, he's thrilled. He's looking in the mirror, seeing himself, knowing he's never worn garments like this. The prince even adds, these garments will last forever and you can keep them. The beggar drops to his knees. Thank you so much. Wow, I, I didn't even imagine this. This is amazing. But he looks over at the pile of the dirty, torn, and tattered rags that he had just taken off. He hesitated. What if the prince was wrong? What if someone asked for the garments back? What if he needed those clothes again? Quickly, he, he gathered them up into a little ball. Well, the banquet the next night was far greater than, than the beggar ever imagined, but he really couldn't enjoy himself as he should. You see, he had made a small bundle of these rags and, and he set it on his lap just in case someone came to take away the royal robes. You know, he would have something to wear. And this, this ball of old tattered rags kept falling off his lap. In fact, sometimes hors d'oeuvres would pass by and he would miss something because these rags would fall on the floor. Well, time proved that the prince was right. No one came to ask for the royal, robe, uh, royal clothes back. And still the poor beggar was doubtful, clinging to these old rags. As time passed, people soon looked past the royal garments he was wearing, and they even began to refer to him as the old man who clung to tattered rags. He would live his days clinging to these everywhere he went. Well, many weeks and months went by, and as he lay on his deathbed, the king visited him. The beggar saw the sad look on the king's face when he realized that the beggar had held on to these torn and tattered rags, and they were right there by his bedside, just right there handy. And suddenly the beggar remembered the prince's words and realized that this bundle of rags had cost him a lifetime of joy. He cried bitterly because he had held on in foolishness to his past. Perhaps you're here today and you would have a tendency to see yourself opposite of the way that God sees you? Will you today realize that you have been clothed in royalty? And will you, when you get up from this place in a few moments and leave, will you leave here the torn and tattered rags of your past, of anything that would be up here or what the world says about you? And will you believe what is the truest thing about you, which is what your heavenly father your creator says about you. Just like the beggar, today you face a choice. I hope you make the right one. Stand up with me for a moment. Let's pray, church.
Lord, help us today to hear your truth. Forgive us when we've believed a lie. And thank you that you call each of us chosen and royal and holy, your special possession. Help us to receive the identity that you have given us. And for those listening in this room or, or watching online to this message, for those who are seeing themselves in anything different than how you see them, remind us of your truth that we are acceptable, that we are valuable, that we're capable, forgivable, and lovable. Now, maybe you're in the room here today and you've had a mistaken identity about yourself in one of these areas and you've believed something different, either through your own thinking or what the world tells you or what people around you speak into your life. And you know, in at least one of these areas, you need to make a change and see yourself in the way that God sees you. Just between you and me, would you just lift your hand right there just so I can pray for you? I'm not gonna embarrass you in any way. Hands all across the room, all across the room. If you wanna join them, just lift your hand. In one of these areas, you want to see yourself amazing all across the room. And right here in this room, in this place, God, thank you. Thank you for those making this commitment today to exchange the lie about themselves for the truth today. Meet them right here with your grace and your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And let's respond to God in worship together.